Well, good morning, folks. I'm glad you're all, you all are here. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it at this point in time, if you haven't, and uh, turn to the passage that Jay just read, Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. As we uh, end our sermon series entitled Half-Hearted on the book of Malachi here um, with Malachi's final cry to God's wayward people. As Malachi says to them and to us, prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. Let's pray. I trust that you're there in your Bible. If you don't uh, have a Bible, you can just look on the screen behind me. Let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, we pray that you would be among us this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, that your spirit would be active uh, through my voice, that I would speak that which you would have for me to speak, that it would be uh, compatible with your word and altogether truthful and accurate. We pray for uh, those who will be hearing uh, your word. We pray that their hearts would be open, that their minds would be sharp and keen, and that their uh, attention would be um, uh, would be full this morning, that you would keep us from distraction uh, and from thinking of other things, and that we would focus our hearts and our minds upon you as we close this wonderful book that we've had the privilege of, of going through these past several weeks. Father, we pray that we would all be prepared for the day of your son's return, that day of judgment and that day of great glory, depending upon where we stand with you through faith in your son. Help us, we pray, to be prepared in the name of Christ and all of God's people said, amen. You know, some people uh, are naturally good at being prepared. Some people are just good at being prepared, and they're always prepared. Other people, on the other hand, are not so much. They're not very good at being prepared. They're always caught off guard, not ready for the circumstance that may arise. Which one are you most like? Well, I can tell you which one I'm most like, and you probably, if you know me at all, know which one it is. Um, It's good to be prepared. My wife is always prepared. She's very good at being prepared. In fact, when we prepare for trips, like the one that's upcoming uh, next week, we will be spending a week with my family down in Texas, and we're really excited. Uh, But to spend a week in Texas uh, with six people and four kids uh, takes some preparation, does it not? And so my wife has been packing literally for about a week, right? She started, I think, last weekend, starting and packing and thinking through uh, all of the things that might be needed, particularly with the kids uh, at the beach and otherwise, all of the things and, and packing and getting it just right. She is really good at being prepared. In fact, she has a list of things that we need, and as the, the week uh, goes by and as the day draws near, she kind of uh, marks it off, right, so that she can be totally prepared. And it's, it's an uncanny thing. I'm so grateful for it because, you know, we're, we're traveling in the car, we're in the airport, and I'm like, honey, did we pack the, and before I can even finish the sentence, boom, there it is, right? She has it ready. She is good at being prepared. Want to take a guess at me? I'm not so good at being prepared. I, I try my best to be prepared for things, but it's just not in my nature. Um, a quick story along those lines. Uh, my freshman year in college, uh, down at A&M, I showed up to class, and I thought it was just a normal class. I sit in my seat next to 500 other people that I don't know, and uh, take my, my seat, and here we go, ready for class. And uh, I think it was economics, maybe, although I'm not sure. The prof says, good morning. I hope you're all prepared for our exam today. And uh, needless to say, I was not prepared for our exam today. I didn't even know there was an exam because I was still learning to make calendars and prepare and study ahead. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not prepared at all. He says, pull out your scantrons. You think I have a scantron? 
No, I don't. And so I, I'm, I'm looking at my neighbor. I'm like, hey, dude, can I borrow a Scantron? And because he's an Aggie, good-natured guy, he's like, sure, I've got an extra Scantron. So, so he gave me a Scantron. I'm like, all right, this is good. I can take this test. And uh, the professor says, I hope you all have number two pencils. And do you think I have a number two pencil? No, I don't. I only carry pens. And so I'm like, hey, buddy, you know, he's like, here's a pencil. You know, he, he, he knows what's going on here. He sees the panic in my face because I am obviously not prepared. And uh, on we go with the test. And uh, I, I noticed as the test was going on that he's, you know, sitting next to me and he's kind of doing this. You know what I mean? <laughs> so he knows I'm not prepared and he thinks I'm going to borrow something else, right? Um, which I didn't, by the way. I, you know, some people are prepared and some people aren't always good about being prepared. But Friends, it's a good thing to be prepared. In fact, it's not only a good thing, it's utterly necessary that we be prepared. You know, today as we finish out the book of Malachi, we enter into this sixth and final dispute. We see God telling his covenant people that there is a test coming, that there is a day coming, and it's a test, and they should be prepared for it. And he says the same for you and I, that we should be prepared for this coming test. He calls it the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of judgment and the day of glory. See, some of us, some of us will be prepared for that day. But friends, some of us, unfortunately, will not be prepared for that day. And so the question is, will we? Will we be prepared for that day? I pray and hope that we will. And Malachi is going to tell us, how we can be prepared. So Malachi says to God's people of old and God's people today, prepare, prepare for God. Prepare for the final exam. Let's begin in chapter 3, verse 13, where Malachi almost always begins introducing a charge from God against some, emphasis on some, some of his covenant people. Notice verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly, Against me, says the Lord. So as always, the prophet Malachi introduces this dispute with a charge against some in his covenant community. And the charge is very clear. Malachi says to the covenant people, at least a group of them, some of you have spoken, my translation says, arrogantly. Your translation may say harshly. Harshly. Literally, the Hebrew reads like this. God says, you have spoken strong words. That's the, that's the word there. You have spoken strong words against me, says the Lord. You know, in Texas, where I'm from, we have a saying when somebody says something to you that is kind of offensive. You know, somebody says something to you that makes you angry. We say, them are fighting words. That should be in the dictionary. Them are fighting words. You know, that's what God is saying to his covenant people. He's saying, I, I, I've heard you say some things. You've spoken strongly against me. Them are fighting words. Well, what were those fighting words? We'll find out in just a minute. But of course, we have to get the cynical cross-examination, the question of the people to God. Because they they don't know. They don't understand, right? So notice verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, Malachi putting the words in the people's mouth, yet you ask... What have we said against you? So as always, the people want details. They, how could we possibly say strong words against you? The accused want some specifics, right? They want to know, what have we said against you? 
What fighting words have we said? Well, God obliges in verses 14 and 15. He confirms his charge against them. The thrust of the people's strong fighting words could be summarized in one sentence. And here it is. We'll work through it. The people were essentially saying, it's futile, it's vain, it's futile to serve God. They said it's not worth it. It's not worth serving and and pursuing obedience to God for a couple reasons. Number one, because the righteous aren't rewarded. Because the righteous aren't being rewarded. And secondly, because the wicked aren't being punished. That's essentially what they have said. Now let's take a look at it in verse 14. First, they say it's not worth serving God. That's that's the strong word that they have spoken against him. Notice verse 14. You have said, Malachi is going to lay it out for them. You have said, quote, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? So first of all, they said it's vain, it's futile, it's useless. Why are we going about pursuing obedience to the Mosaic law? Why are we going about uh, in repentance, even though it wasn't true repentance? What do we gain? See, this group of people, they saw no tangible benefit to serving and obeying God, especially in this life. They said, what do we get out of this deal? See, they thought that merely externally obeying the law, right, an external observance of the rituals and the the laws of God were tantamount or the same to obeying him, right? And they were upset. They were mad because they, they thought that they were pursuing obedience to God, though they actually weren't, but none of the covenant blessings that God had promised his people for obedience were coming upon them. See, theirs was a self-serving religion. They looked at their supposed obedience, and they said, we're not getting anything out of this deal. It's futile to serve God. Second, they said, listen, the righteous, they're not rewarded. We look at the righteous people around us, those who are pursuing obedience, and they're not rewarded. Notice verse 15. But now, they say, but now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, evildoers prosper. So they looked at the righteous and they said, they're not getting anything. They're not being blessed. In fact, those who are arrogant, who are disobedient to God, it seems like God is blessing them, but that's not all. Not only did they say it's, it's futile. Not only did they say, listen, the righteous aren't rewarded, but notice the tail end of verse 15. They said the wicked aren't being punished. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. And so they said, listen, it's just not worth it. We're going to stop it. It's not worth serving God. It's not worth obeying him. The righteous aren't rewarded in this life, seemingly, and the wicked, well, they're not being punished. So let's just give this up. Let's not serve God at all. And that leads us to our first lesson of the day. Because, friends, just like God's covenant people of old can buy this lie, so we can too. We too can believe that It's simply not worth serving God in this lifetime. But the question we have to ask ourselves is when we begin to think this way, when we're tempted to look around us and to look at our own lives and ask, what am I getting out of this Christianity thing? What am I getting out of this pursuit of obedience? What What am I getting? When we actually start asking that question, we have to ask another question, and it's this. Why are we serving God in the first place, right? Why are we serving God in the first place? Is it Is it to get something from him? 
And if so, is that true obedience? Or is it merely a a, a mercenary manipulation of God? We need to ask questions like, why do we show up to church? Why do we read our Bibles? Why are we seeking to pray? Why, Why do we do that? Is it because we want God to grow our business? Or we want him to grow our boldness? Is it because we want him to bless our our household or to bless our holiness? So we have to ask, why are we actually doing this? We have to seek our motives. But not only that, we need to ask about the quality of our obedience. See, what we see here is God's covenant people. They thought that they were being obedient. They were going through the motions, right? They were going through the rituals. They were going through the sacrifices. They thought that their obedience was enough, but it was simply half-hearted, right? It was simply half-hearted self-serving, fake obedience. So is our obedience merely external, like those in Malachi's day? Is it not linked to faith in God and love for him? They simply were going through the motions. And friends, I don't know about you, but I find that it's so easy for me to do that. So we fool ourselves into thinking that merely attending church or giving money or being involved in ministry or sing, singing some songs or sitting in a class, that that in and of itself is obeying God. But friends, if this is not done out of personal faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if it's not fueled by God's grace, if it's not aimed at his glory, then we're simply like they were going through the motions. I've told this story before, so I'll make it brief. But when I was younger, um, I was a sleepwalker. I don't know if you have any sleepwalkers in your household, but it's kind of a creepy thing. Um, I, uh, even to my teenage days, I would often sleepwalk, and uh, I would walk down the stairs in the middle of the night, and my mom would hear me, and it was no big deal. But one night, um, she heard something unusual. She heard uh, the patio doors that were uh, right below our staircase open up. And she knew something was, was up. Um, and so she got out of bed, and uh, by the time she found me, I had walked uh, outside uh, onto our, our deck that uh, was adjacent to our, our, our house, and I was walking up the steps to our pool. And my mom asked me, Trey, what are you doing? And uh, I, I didn't answer her, she said. And she said, are you going swimming in your underwear? And I think I probably looked down, and I didn't say anything. She said, go back to bed. And I did. And uh, the next morning, she said, did you know that you were trying to go swimming in your sleep last night? And I said, what are you talking about? She said, yeah, you're sleepwalking, but you went outside and you were going up the pool steps. And I have no, I had no clue, no recollection. Because when you're sleepwalking, your mind is, is elsewhere, right? You're, you're, you're doing something, but your heart's not there. Your mind's not there. It's, it's elsewhere. And friends, that's That's the religion of the day for these folks. They were simply going through the motions thinking that that was sufficient. Friends, is that how we relate to God? Well, on the heels of God's confirming his charge against his people, we get a revelation of another group of people, another group of Jews and the covenant people, God-fearing people, obedience-pursuing people. You could call them the called-out ones. Because there was a group of people at the time, and they were ready to throw the towel in. They said, listen, we're not getting anything out of this religion, anything out of this obedience to God. We're, we're, we're ready to throw the towel in. And they, they spoke strong words against God. But that's not the only group of people that existed. There were faithful believers and followers of God. Notice, we're introduced to them in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. 
Now, isn't that an interesting contrast? There was a group of people, and they said, forget it. We're not getting anything out of this. We're going to give up. But then there's another group of people, and the text says that they feared God. That is, they weren't serving God to get something from God. They served God because they loved him. And they had a real living relationship through faith with him. They feared the Lord. And so what did they do? They get together, right? I don't know if it's, it's out in the town square or if it was at somebody's house, but all of those who feared the Lord said, let's get together. And I think this is what they were doing. I think they were encouraging one another. I think they heard all of the scuttlebutt running throughout the, the, the nation of Israel, and they heard people on the streets and in their household saying, let's give up serving God. It's not worth it. We're not gaining anything. They heard that, and they said, we need to be together to encourage one another. They were telling each other, I believe, no, it's not futile to serve God. Don't give up. And that leads to a second lesson for the day. We too need to encourage one another that faithfulness is not futile. That being faithful to God is not futile. See, just as the faithful believers of Malachi's day needed needed each other to remind one another of this, friends, so much more do we. When we are tempted, and I don't know about you, but I am tempted to think this at times. Aren't you? That, what? God, I'm pursuing you. I'm trying to obey you. I'm trying to do what's right. But I kind of wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Should I keep going? When we are tempted to think that way, we need each other. We need each other to say, don't give up. It's not in vain. Run the race. Keep going. Finish the course. God will reward you. That's why in Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews gives us these wonderful verses in verse 24. And let us, he says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Notice this, not giving up meeting together. That's what these Jews were doing. They were meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But what? Encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. I had the privilege, uh, not this past week, but the week before, of going to uh, Moody Bible Institute's Pastors Conference. And so, thank you for sending me. It was wonderful. I had a great time. It's always good. And uh, there I was able to catch up with uh, some old friends and uh, make some new ones. And in the course of a conversation that I was having with a pastor there, he was just very discouraged. Uh, his ministry was not going well, and uh, he was... Uh, he was getting it from all sides. And uh, on top of that, he was just like, I see my other, uh, other friends and neighbors and, and coworkers, and they have more, and, and uh, they're accomplishing more. And he was just so discouraged. He's like, am I doing the right thing? Should I even be here, right? I mean, I preach, and I preach, and I teach, and I pray, and I counsel, and, and this is what I get, right? And he was so discouraged. And I had the chance, I, I pray, to kind of do what these people in Malachi were doing was to meet together with him and say, friend, um, I know it looks hard and I know uh, it looks rough. Stay the course. It's not futile, right? Stay true to your calling to do that. We need each other to do that. Well, Malachi, it's amazing. We get the account. The faithful are gathered. They're encouraging one another. And what does God do? How does God respond to people who gather together to encourage one another to be faithful to him. Malachi rolls back the curtains of heaven, and we get a glimpse of God's response. Notice, notice uh, verse 16, the tail end. And the Lord listened. 
And the Lord listened, and he heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord. That is the group we just talked about. Concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. This is amazing. The faithful are gathered on earth and they're encouraging one another be be true be faithful it's not futile and they're encouraging one another and we get this glimpse of what's going on in heaven and in heaven god hears and god sees and he knows and he responds by pulling out a heavenly scroll i don't know if it's literal or not nor do i care because the point is that he unrolls the scroll and he's writing down the deeds of the faithful He's writing down the names of those who are believers in him. And it's God's way of communicating to us, I don't ever forget anything you do when you're faithful to me, right? That's what God is communicating. I don't forget. I'm taking note. I will reward you. And what is that reward? Notice verse 17 again. On the day when I act, that is the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return, which we will see in a minute. On that day, You will be my treasured possession. He says, you will be so valuable to me. So valuable. And not only that, he says, I will spare them. Spare them from what? That's interesting, isn't it? Spare them from the judgment to come is most obviously the answer, as we will see in just a moment. So God is telling them, listen, I'm going to have an award ceremony for you. I'm going to single you out because of your faithfulness to me. I think of uh, the rewards, uh, award ceremony at school. You've probably been to them. Your kids have probably been through them, right? There's a a, a, a elementary-wide one, and then sometimes the the school, the classes have their own, like, individual awards, right? Um, And I was, I missed both of them this year because I was at the pastor's conference, but I got home, and uh, I asked Astor, hey, did you get any awards? And he said, for his first grade award, he got the science award because he, uh, his, he, he was so interested in science and he, he perked up and I was so proud of him because he did that. You know what? God says, listen, I am going to have an awards assembly one day on the day when I act and you will be my treasured possession. I will spare you from my wrath. And notice what he says in verse 18. It's as if God turns from speaking to the faithful And he turns to the unfaithful, to the unbeliever, to those who were doubting that it was worth serving him, to those who were saying, God won't punish the wicked. And notice what he says in verse 18. And you, that is to the unbelieving crowd, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. See, God emphatically answers their doubts. He says, yes, it is worth serving me. Yes, it is worth being faithful to me because I do reward the righteous. I do reward them. They will be my special possession and I will spare them from eternal judgment. Friends, there's lots that we can learn from these two verses, but let me point out a couple lessons for today. First of all, this is a really important one. What we see here is that not all in the church are God's special possession. See, just as in Malachi's day, right, and the Jews, even in Jesus' day, they presumed that being a part of the old covenant people of God meant that they would enter his eternal kingdom. And friends, today, 
the same is true of us. Many presume that being associated with or a part of the new covenant church of God means that they'll be in heaven. But both are wrong. Friends, don't think that just because you come to church, don't think that just because you are associated with the covenant people of God, that you are a part of the covenant people of God. See, the uh, 19th century evangelist Billy Sunday said it well. He said this. He said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car. And that's so true. The second lesson is this. God spares those who receive his salvation by faith. What was one of the rewards of those who are rightly related to God through faith? He says, I will spare you. See, just as God promised to spare from the day of judgment these faithful Jews, he promises to spare those of us in this day, under this covenant, who receive his salvation by faith in Jesus Christ to spare us from the wrath that is to come. So friends, you need to know Will God spare you on that day? Is that part of your reward because of your faith in him? Well, in sharp contrast to those who will be spared, we turn from the called out to the condemned. It's as if God is, is on a swivel, right? And he's, he's talking to the unfaithful. Then he's talking to the faithful. Then he turns again in verse 1 of chapter 4 to talk to the unfaithful. Notice what he says in verse 1 about the condemned. Surely the day is coming. What day? The day of the Lord, as we see throughout the Old Testament. We know, uh, according to New Testament revelation, that this is the day of the return of Jesus Christ. Surely the day is coming. What will it be like? It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So God speaks to the faithful. This is your reward. You will be my treasured possession. I will spare you. And then he turns to those who doubted, who were unbelieving in his day. And he speaks to them and he says, this is what the day of the Lord will be like for you. And it's not, it's not a pretty picture. It's a picture of judgment as fire in the Old Testament and even in the New is a picture of God's judgment. He said, it will be an all-consuming judgment. Notice the image. He says, not a root or a branch will be left to them. This is the image that God gives. It's not exactly like this, but it's similar. He, he gives the image of his judgment on those who are unbelievers. And he says it's like a forest fire that consumes everything in its way. This is a picture of tree, strum, of tree stumps that were left after a massive forest fire. And you notice there's not branches and there's not much of a trunk, but there are the roots that are left, right, in this picture. Glenn, we can move on from that. But notice, God says, my judgment, there won't even be a root. It's the idea that God won't miss anything, right? That his judgment will be total. And that leads us to another lesson. God judges those who reject his salvation by faith. See, just as assuredly as God saves for all eternity, those who take refuge in him from his wrath through the sinless life and substitutionary death of his son, God also judges for all eternity. Those who refuse to take refuge in him from his wrath through the sinless life and substitutionary death of his son, Jesus Christ. See, friends, it's popular in our day to just think that heaven is for real. 
but not to think that hell is for real, right? We can make movies about the one, but not about the other. But you can't have it both ways. You can't believe in heaven and not in hell. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Regardless of what Rob Bell or anybody else says, Jesus makes it crystal clear in Matthew 10, 28. In many other places, Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So friends, we want to make sure that we won't be there for all eternity. As assuredly as God says, you will be my special possession and I will spare you if you have faith in my son, so too he will judge those who reject that. Well, following this picture of the condemned, he moves back to the faithful in verses 2 and 3. And he shows us the consequences of those who believe. He goes back and forth. Notice verse 2. But for you who revere my name. Back and forth, right? But for you who revere my name. Notice the imagery. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day, notice the emphasis of the day in this passage. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. See, here we see even more consequences, even more rewards, if you will, for those who are faithful to Christ and who have a relationship with God through Christ. So what will those consequences be? What will the day be? Well, God says the day for unbelievers will be like a a consuming fire. That's what the day will be like for them. But what will the day like the the day be like for those who are faithful to Christ? Well, notice the image first. It will be a day of righteousness. It will be a place where righteousness reigns. Notice the image. The sun of righteousness will rise. The idea is that just as the sun rises and it gives its light throughout all of the earth, this day for those who are faithful, all the world will be covered in his righteousness. It will be a gloriously holy place on the day that Christ returns. But not only that, he says that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. It's a picture of healing, physical, spiritual, emotional, restoration. It will be a restored place. But not only that, it will be a place of great joy. Notice what it will be like for those of us who will be there. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Now, even though I grew up in Texas, I didn't grow up around calves or cows. So I had to look this up. What does this look like? So, sorry, city kid, right? So I had to look this up, and there's a a little video I want to show you. Snug Valley Farms, wherever that is. Put this little video of the calves coming out of their pens uh, after uh, uh, after a long winter. So let's watch this. All right, very good. So I had to go to YouTube to learn what this meant, right? And uh, here it is. But isn't that a great picture? It's, it's a picture of, of, of animals that have been enchained, right? They've been cooped up, and now they're free, right? And there's joy in that freedom. Friends, for those of us who know Christ, the righteousness that will rule, right? The, 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 the restoration and the, the healing that will come, we will be filled with joy. We will be like those calves, 
Well, the, the section and the book ends in verses 4 through 6. And it ends with Malachi, God through Malachi, giving a call. And it's kind of a final call to be prepared, to prepare yourself for this day in light of the judgment that will come upon those who are unbelievers and the glory that will come for those who are. Be prepared is the call of verses 4 through 6. First, in verse 4, Israel was uh, reminded to prepare for the future day of the Lord by obeying his laws in the present. God says, my people, if you want to be prepared for the coming day in the future, then be obedient to me in the present. Notice verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I have given him at Horeb for all of Israel. Of course, a reference to Israel through Moses receiving the law. God essentially makes it clear to them, if you want to be prepared for the day tomorrow, heed my laws today. But that's not, that's, that's not the only thing he says. Notice, he says Israel was to prepare for the future day of the Lord, not just by obeying his laws in the present, but by anticipating his prophet in the future. By anticipating a coming prophet in the future. Verses 5 and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else. Notice that. That's an important two words. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So who is this man? This future to them, I believe past to us, prophet that Israel was to anticipate who would come before this great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's judgment and restoration. Well, I believe that this is John the Baptist. We saw this uh, back in Malachi chapter 3, right? We see that Jesus in Matthew 11 says that this indeed was John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, what did he do? He prepared the way for the Lord, right? He prepared God's people, the nation of Israel, for the coming of their Messiah. We see that he called for radical repentance. Read the Gospels. What was his message, right? Repent for the kingdom of nation, uh, for the kingdom of God is, is at hand, right? His message was a message of repentance, radical repentance. But interestingly enough, while he did lead many in Israel to to repent and to be prepared for the coming of Messiah, it wasn't complete. It wasn't total like we see described here in verse 6. This idea that both parents and children, that is young and old, all in the nation will be prepared. There will be a, a repentance. That's what this man, this Elijah to come, who I think is John the Baptist, that's his goal. That's his mission to preach repentance. But friends did All of the Jews in Jesus' day repent. We know that that was not the case. Many, many did not. And so Malachi tells us that in light of this message of repentance that John the Baptist preached, or else, that is, if the people don't repent, what will happen? Or else, God says, I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Friends, do you know what happened to the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? The Roman uh, army came and leveled it, leveled it, completely destroyed it, burned it. And the Jewish people uh, that were there in that day, kind of the hub of, of Judaism, they were persecuted, murdered, tortured, and scattered. They went out. And I think that that is what Malachi is referring to. 
because the people did not repent at the preaching of John the Baptist in preparation of Jesus, for the most part, God came and destroyed their land. Well, there's one final lesson for us today. We too can prepare for the future day of the Lord. How? Well, in two ways, and they're the same. By obeying his laws in the present and by anticipating his coming in the future. In fact, that's what John, the great apostle, said in 1 John 3. He says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. That is, at our resurrection, when Christ returns, the day of the Lord. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And here's the point in verse 3 that I'm getting at. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. So in the old and in the new, God tells his people, you want to be prepared for that day? Then pursue obedience right now. But not only that, we prepare for Christ's return by anticipating his coming in the future. Notice, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, here's how we're going to end our sermon, and here's how we're going to end the book of Malachi. Let me close with this question, and it may be the most important question that you've ever been asked. Are you prepared for the day of the Lord? There is a day coming. Are you prepared for the day that Christ himself returns from heaven, literally, bodily, to judge those who have rejected him and to usher in a kingdom for those who have accepted his salvation through faith? Are you prepared for that day? Because it's good to be prepared, right? But not only is it good to be prepared, it's utterly necessary to be prepared. See, it's one thing to show up to a college exam and to not have a scantron and to not have a pencil and to not have the answers to the test, right? But it's another thing altogether to show up on Judgment Day when Christ returns and be woefully unprepared to meet God because you don't have a relationship with Him through faith in Christ. So friends, brothers and sisters, are you prepared? Are you ready? Because the day is coming. Let's pray. Father, for those here who are hearing my voice, and they know in their hearts that they are not prepared for that day. They have no certainty, no assurance of that. Lord, may they now, even now, in their hearts, cry out to you through your son, Jesus. May they confess that there is no merit in and of themselves, that there is no good that they could do, that there is no earning your salvation, that there's no earning of heaven, that it's only a free gift, and it's only to be received through your grace by trusting in what Christ has done, and in what Christ has done alone. No church attendance, no baptism, no merit, no being better than your, your, your neighbor. Nothing is sufficient except for the perfect obedience of Christ for us and his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins and his powerful resurrection to give us new life now and eternal life forever. Father, there is a day coming. You've told us this. May we be prepared. And for those of us who are, we know that we are through faith in Christ. May we rejoice because that is the day when we will be your treasured possession. That is the day when you will spare us from your all-consuming fire and wrath because of your Son. That's the day when the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. That's the day when we will have great joy. 
and we will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. May it be soon, we pray in the name of Jesus and God's people together said, amen. Guys, thanks for coming. See you next week.